Our scripture reading this morning can be found on page 1029 in the Pew Bibles. If you want to make reference to that, uh, uh, you can uh, refer to that while Pastor Kevin um, is, is preaching. Um, scripture this morning is found in uh, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Another friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will he give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Yeah, we'll use this for, yeah, okay. Thank you, Randy. Um, sorry, it's weird. I got a red light on my, on my little mic pack. And, uh, but I'm not stopping. It's saying red light, but I'm going anyways. My uh, great-grandfather, Osborne McIntyre, uh, was a... Remarkable man in many ways. He, I'm not entirely sure when he was born. I'm fairly certain he was born before the 20th century, somewhere uh, in the decade, I think, right before the beginning of the 20th century. And he spent his entire career as an engineer on the railroad. And probably his greatest claim to fame was there was one point when he was engineering a train that was carrying President Eisenhower. My, my great-grandfather, Daddy Oz, as we referred to him, was a remarkable man in many ways. I think that perhaps one story that captures just how remarkable uh, Daddy Oz really was is the story of him getting out of a car. And I don't know how old he was. I wasn't there. This is a story that has been passed on um, subsequently, but... But he was, he was getting up in years, and he, 
He got out of the car and somebody shut the door of the car and his hand got stuck. The door shut and his hand was stuck. His hand was in the car. He was outside the car and the door was shut. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would probably scream bloody murder is I believe how I would probably respond in that sort of situation. But Daddy Oz, and this was very indicative of who he was as a person, he, he very gently, he turned to uh, his daughter, my aunt, Aunt Jeannie, and, and said, excuse me, can you help me? My hand is stuck in the car. Today we're continuing in a series which we began last week called Soul Fit, and the question which I asked last week and I'm going to ask again throughout this series of you and of myself is, is are we soul fit? This is a time of year when we look to get fit. Uh, We look to get, uh, this is the New Year's, time of New Year's resolutions where we try to get fit. We try to get uh, our finances fit, try to get our finances in order. Uh, We try to get um, our house in order. Maybe you got a, a lot of extra stuff for Christmas and you want to, you realize you need to clear out the clutter and here we're going to get some, we're going to get these, this battery pack fit. That's what we're going to do right now. Get this fit. You want to, all right. Thank you, Mark. But this is that time of year when we're, we're trying to get fit. We try to get physically fit, right? This is the time of year. I said last week that, that gym memberships go up 40% in January. Everybody Signs up for the gym in January and, and then stops going in February, right? That's usually what happens. But, but this is the time of year when we look to try to get fit. Maybe we start to, to eat better, start thinking about this is the year, 2018 is the year when I'm going to start eating more healthily in a way that will help to get me fit. And so this is a time when we, we think about getting our souls fit. But the question I have, or excuse me, we look to get ourselves fit. The question I want to ask, though, is, is what about our souls, is your soul fit? Of course, what does that even mean? What does that look like to have a soul that is fit, right? We know what it looks like to be physically fit. We, we get pictures. Uh, we get inundated on the internet with pictures of, of people who are physically fit. Just watch how seamless this transition is going to be. You're not even going to notice here. But we do, we get inundated. I notice that, you know, no matter what you are viewing on, on, uh, on the internet, no matter what you are viewing on the internet, look at that, was that, was that fancy or what? No matter what you're looking at on the internet, if you get uh, a commercial or an ad, and these days ads just pop up all the time. I don't even notice this. Like, even if you're, it used to be that if you're watching a video, you might get a video commercial, right, before. Now, you can be reading an article, and all of a sudden, boop, this video will pop up and advertise something to you. And whether it's a video or a picture or whatever it is, no matter what they're trying to sell you, somebody physically fit will be in the picture. doesn't matter what they're selling you, whether they're selling you insurance, whether they're selling you a car, whether they're selling you new clothes, no matter whether they're selling you donuts, I mean, whatever they're selling you, the person selling it is physically fit. So we're inundated with images and pictures of people who are physically fit. So we all know what a physically fit person looks like. 
But what does a, a person whose soul is fit look like? What are the characteristics of a soul fit person? And we looked at this last week in, in some, some measure. We looked at a passage which, which talks about, and I'll just highlight one of the things that we brought out last week, and that is that a, a person who is soul fit is a person who is, seems to be unaffected by their circumstances. That their ability to live a life of peace and joy, love and kindness and patience and goodness, and faithfulness, all the things, the fruit of the Spirit. If those of you who are familiar with that passage in Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it's really a description of the abundant life. And what we saw last week is that a person who is soul fit, one of the characteristics of a person who is soul fit is that they have these qualities about them no matter what the circumstances are. And so we talked about, the we, we were looking at Psalm chapter 1, which uses this image of a tree. And it says that a, basically a person who is soul fit is like a tree that is planted by a stream of water. And the imagery there is, is that a, a tree that is planted by a stream of water, they, that tree receives nourishment and is able to grow and flourish irrespective of what the weather is like around them. To a certain extent, right? It's an, it's an illustration. But, but in other words, you know, and I, I talked about my parents and my brother. They all live in, in western Colorado where a lot of it's just barren. They get like, you know, 762 days of sun each year, something like that. That's more days than they're in a year. Come on, people. You know that, right? Anyway, they get a ton of sun every year. And so the, the landscape, most of the area surrounding their town of Grand Junction is really rather bare and dry and, and whatnot. And there aren't a lot of trees, but, but there's this strip of trees that kind of carves its way through the landscape. And why are those trees there? Well, those trees are there because they, that's the Colorado River that is carving its way through this barren land. And so these trees are able to thrive and survive irrespective of whether or not there's any rain, irrespective of what their circumstances are may be, and what the psalm is then saying is that a person who is soul fit is like that. They're stable, that they're able to experience a measure of joy and peace and kindness and patience, irrespective of the circumstances, irrespective of whether or not things are going well or whether or not their hand gets stuck in a car door. Now, I think my great-grandfather, I think he takes that to a whole another level. I think that you can be a very godly person and still scream if your hand gets stuck in the door, right? I don't think that is necessary. Oh, look at that guy. He is such a sinner. Look at him screaming. His hand is stuck in a door, right? So I don't think, I think my daddy Oz took that to another whole level, but that as an illustration, as an image of what it might look like for a person to be soul fit, a person who has a measure of peace and joy and is able to show patience and kindness irrespective of the circumstances. They're a stable person. And so I I was just asking this question, are we soul fit people? Are you soul fit? And what we're looking at in the course of this series is, well, how do I get soul fit then? How How do I get my soul in shape. Again, we know how to get physically fit, right? It's not that we don't know how to do it. It's just that we often don't do it, right? But we know what it is. We know how to get physically fit, but do we even know how to get soul fit? 
And that's what this series is about. We are looking at various exercises, you might say, that you can engage in that can enable your soul to get fit. It's important to remember, I'm just kind of saying this off the cuff, that when we talk about this, we're talking about things like we looked last week at meditation, this idea of meditating on the scriptures, meditating on the word of God and allowing the gospel as the, as the scriptures point us to who God is revealed to us through scripture and then in Christ as we meditate on that, that enables us to, to tr- our souls to be shaped. So we looked at meditation last week and we're going to be looking at various of these various exercises that enable our souls to become fit. What's really important, and, and I'll just say this down, I'll probably say it later as well. When we start talking about these practices, we're not talking about things that you must do to get God to love you. It's really important. We're not talking about things that you've got to do to get God to love you. And I think that that's how a lot of us tend to hear these kinds of messages. If you have any sort of religious inclination, this is how you begin to hear you like, oh my gosh, I got to get my act together. I got to start praying. I got to start reading my Bible. I've got to start fasting. I've got to start doing, you know, whatever it is. And we think that this is what you've got to do to get God to love you. And that's not at all what this is about. The heart of the gospel is that God loves you no matter what you do. The heart of the gospel is that God loves you and cares about you irrespective of whether or not you engage in these practices or not. As I like to say, the question isn't isn't about getting God to love us. It's about getting us to love God. The problem isn't God loving you. God loves you. He loves me. The question is, you know, our own hearts will move away from God, and these practices are more designed to help get us to love God, not to get God to love us. It's so important that we say that at the outset. Before we look at these exercises, well, what are these exercises? We've seen meditation, and today we're looking at prayer. Prayer, and that's what this passage talks about. This is a a passage in which Jesus explains to us, kind of describes what, what prayer, uh, how to pray in a way that can bring transformation into your life. And we're going to be looking actually at this passage both this week and next week. I'm only going to look at the first part of it today and then we'll look at the rest of it next week. Now, before we get into this, I think one of the things that's important to, to, to notice about, about all of these practices meditation, prayer, etc., is that they, it takes time. In order for one to begin to see change, lasting change, we've got to realize that it takes time, that engaging in these practices, they don't necessarily bring instant transformation. And we ought to know this, because if you think about virtually anything else in life, if you think about trying to get physically fit, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, if, if you go and you, and you hop on the treadmill and you run for five minutes, or how about this? You go, you stand on the scale, you look at the scale, you get off, you get on the treadmill, you run for five minutes, and you run back and you get back on the treadmill, you're probably going to be disappointed, right? It, it, that's not the way it works. I mean, I remember one time I went and I worked out, I like lifted weights, and then I went back into my room and I flexed in the mirror and I it really was not impressed. I was hoping I would be a lot more impressed than I was. But it doesn't work that way. It, it takes time. All of these things take time. Physical fitness takes time before you be, are going to begin to see results. And the same thing is true with these kinds of practices. And what that means is, is that it's something that if, if we're going to see change in our lives, 
then we have to make a, a committed change in our life to see it happen. It has to be something where we look at our lives and we say, I'm going to make a change in my life so that this can become a regular part of my life. Dallas Willard, and I, I, I've, if, you know, truthfully, if we went back over the last seven years I've been here, and we found one quote that I've quoted the most, it's probably this one. I quote it all the time. Dallas Willard uh, wrote a number of books. One of his books called The Divine Conspiracy is one of my top five of all time in terms of, it, of its influence on my life. Dallas Willard is an individual who passed away about five years ago, and he was, he was actually not a, he did not do ministry full-time. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. So he had a normal job. He was not, he wasn't, he wasn't in ministry professionally. He was, uh, he worked in a normal job like the rest of you. That's, I think that's important to note when you come to realize the way he talked about these kinds of practices. And this is just what he said. Well, before I say this, I'll, I'll say one other thing about Dallas Willard. He, he was an individual who just seemed to be so in tune with the Spirit of God that the, the joke when he died amongst his friends was that people wondered if he realized that he had died. Because he was already in the presence of God, so it would be a completely seamless transition for him. And this is what he says about these practices. He says, you cannot tack a life-transforming practice of prayer and study onto life as usual. Let me say that again. You cannot tack a life-transforming practice of prayer and study Onto life as usual. Life as usual must go. It will be replaced by something far better. He's saying this takes time, right? We, if this is something where we're going to see change in our lives, we've got to be committed to this and recognize that we may have to make some changes in our lives and in our schedule in order to be able to see this taking place. So this is my challenge. This is why I'm doing this in January, when we're all fired up to make changes, right? To encourage you to maybe consider making some changes in your own life to open up time for some of these practices. So today we're looking at prayer. We're looking at prayer as an exercise that can enable us to become soul fit. And I want to highlight just a couple things from this passage about prayer. What, what is the kind of prayer that can indeed enable our souls to get fit, that just praying itself can bring, will bring transformation, certainly, but there are certain characteristics of transformative prayer that we need to see. A little bit like this, you know, if you work out, um, it helps if you do it correctly. It's one thing you learn, right? If you're lifting weights, this is why people teach you how to lift weights correctly so that you're using your muscles in the right way because you will, it'll be more beneficial for you. And similarly, we need to understand some important things about prayer and what transformative prayer looks like. And one of the things that emerges from this text, the first thing that emerges from this text, is that the kind of prayer that will bring change to your soul begins by being God-focused, not me-focused. It's prayer that's focused on God, not simply on me. And we see this by looking at how this prayer begins. Jesus sees him, he says, he said to them, when you pray, say, 
Father, hallowed be your name. Notice that. He's suggesting that when we pray, it would be wise to begin by simply lifting up God and and hallowing. Now, this word hallowed, I know this word, people don't know what to do with this word hallowed. When they hear hallowed, they just think Halloween. They think carving pumpkins. They think of the movie The Worst Witch. Have you guys ever seen that movie? It's a terrible movie. Don't ever see it, but Lauren, I love it. It's so bad, but it, yes, you've seen it and you love it. I knew, yes, it's unbelievable. It's a terrible movie, but it's awesome, right? Exactly. Right? Am I right about this? Okay, this is, I love the audience participation going on here. So the worst witch, it's about this girl who she goes to school, and I might be getting this wrong, so don't correct me, right? Don't correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but this girl goes to, to witch school to be a witch, and I mean, it's bad enough that she's a witch, but she's not even a good one. She's a bad, she's not even very good at it. She's not even good at being a witch. Anyway, whatever. The, the point is, when we think of Halloween, this is what we think about is Halloween. We think about carving pumpkins and that sort of thing. And so that can make this a little bit tough for us. But the word hallow, it really just means to set apart as holy. To, to mark out, to, to separate as, as other than, as holy. That's at least originally what it is intended to convey. And so this idea of saying, Father, hallowed be your name. It's this idea of beginning our prayer by, by just acknowledging and praising God for his otherness, for his holiness, for his greatness, that that is how transformative prayer begins. By lifting God up and, and making, I mean, because here's the point, but isn't it true that most of the time when we pray, we just start praying for ourselves, God, help me. God, I need this. God, make this easier in my life. God, why is this happening to me? That we, our prayers, they're very me-focused. Now, as we're going to see throughout this passage, it's perfectly appropriate to pray for ourselves. That's, there's certainly a place, an important place for that. But what this highlights is that transformative prayer begins by elevating God and lifting him up and acknowledging his greatness, and that sets the tone for the entire prayer. In verse the second part of verse 2, it says, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's a prayer that God's kingdom would come. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he expands on that. He says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's this prayer for heaven to come to earth. This is important for us to remember. And I, I This is another whole sermon, actually. I'm going to talk about this after Easter. I'm going to be doing a series where this will come up more. But it's important for us to realize that the ultimate Christian hope isn't simply for us to go to heaven when we die. The ultimate Christian hope is for heaven to come to earth and to renew this world. That that's God's ultimate plan, as glorious as being in heaven in the presence of God is God's ultimate plan is actually to renew and to restore this world. That's why this prayer says, may your kingdom come, and, and Matthew says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's uh, another, another whole message. But the point I want to draw out this morning is the focus is on God's kingdom, not my own kingdom. That it's a prayer for the kingdom of he, not the kingdom of me. That we have a tendency, once again, to pray for our own kingdom. You know, we all have our own little kingdoms. I don't know if you know this or not. 
We have our own little kingdoms, and a kingdom is that sphere over which you have some sort of influence. Your kingdom is whatever you happen to have some sort of influence over. And that begins with your own self, your own body, right? You, you know, you, you guys can't control which direction my arms go. I have control over it. This is part of my kingdom. I can just, I have free reign to move my arms in whatever direction I want, right? So your kingdom begins with just even control over your own self and the choices that you make. That's your kingdom. But then it extends into what other, whatever other responsibilities that you may have, whether it's in your family or at work or what, whatever it may be. And I think what we tend to do is we, we, it's praying, we pray for my kingdom, and, and it's this idea of the advancement of my kingdom. We often pray, maybe you go to work and you, you, you pray for your promotion, and you pray that maybe you would get into college, this particular college, so that you can go do X and Y and Z. And as we'll see, there's a, a place for that, but it's got to come underneath. It's got to become uh, underneath, uh, subordinate to praying for God's kingdom. That this is actually what brings transformation into our souls. That praying for God's kingdom over my kingdom is actually what can begin to bring transformation in my own life. Dying to my own kingdom and praying for God's kingdom, whatever that may look like to come, is actually what can begin to bring transformation in your life. If you, if you turn back, actually, just two chapters before, just one, one page before, you can turn if you want to, on page 1026, we see Jesus saying really exactly this. He's, he's talking to the disciples, and he's calling them to follow him, and this is what he says in verse 23, Luke, Luke 9, verse 23. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he's saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. This is saying that the way in which we find life is by dying to our own kingdoms, submitting our own kingdom to God's kingdom, elevating his kingdom over my kingdom, dying to my kingdom and saying, God, your kingdom come and your will be done. You know, there's a lot of, of research out there these days that's talking about what is it that leads to happiness, what makes people content. And a lot of the research out there is, is showing that probably one of the biggest components to it is expectations. It's all about expectations, that it has virtually nothing to do with how much money you have. There's, a, there's like, a, there's like a, a bare minimum. Everybody has to, you know, sort of have enough to get by, okay? But once everybody has a, a basically enough to survive, there's literally no correlation between more money, more wealth, more success, all of that, and happiness, and the reason is because it's all about expectations, right? So if you're wealthy and you're affluent, right? So, for example, you have the money, you could, you could eat out every night. And so maybe you do. You eat out every night. 
Um, and, and people who maybe can't afford to do that, like, oh, my gosh, that would be so great if I could just eat out every night. The problem is that for people who begin to do that, that becomes their expectation. They expect to be able to eat out every night. And so then, then while if they maybe just got a raise and they're eating out for the first time, and then they're, kinda, they're happier at first, but then it just becomes this expectation. And then they're not any happier than the individual who was at home and just simply is just expecting to have noodles ramen. I mean, they're fine. That's what they expect to have is their noodles ramen. And so it's really all about expectations is what determines your levels of happiness. And so, you know, the whole idea here, right, is that if you, right, if you lower your, if you don't have, if your expectations, if you don't have expectations, then it's much easier to experience the fullness of life. Now, I think it would be easy to, to say, well, yeah, well, I, that's what I've done. I don't, I don't expect anything good to happen, right? Just sort of, I've just learned to not expect anything good to happen. Yeah, don't, yeah, you got married. Don't expect that marriage to go well. Don't expect that. You know, yeah, I just got a new job, but I'll probably get fired. I don't know. I don't expect that. I don't expect to get that promotion. You see, that I don't think is what we're talking about because that sort of pessimism that sort of pessimism, if you meet somebody like that, they're, they're not, they don't experience happiness and joy just because they don't have those expectations. You see, what's going on there is that they actually are still expecting something. They're just expecting things to go badly. What this is actually talking about is taking it to another whole level, and that's you don't have expectations because you're not thinking about yourself. You're just not even thinking about yourself. That's not the way, you're not, you're not expecting or not expecting, you're just not expecting. You're just, that's not your frame of mind. You're just, you're just praying for God's kingdom to come. And what this is saying is that this is actually what leads to life is by just getting the focus off of yourself entirely. We're talking about a posture of prayer, a selfless posture of prayer. I, I think of an example of the kind of selfless prayer that Jesus calls us to, you know, elsewhere Jesus, he tells us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what I think is interesting is that he doesn't say in that passage, he doesn't say, pray that they would stop persecuting you. That's actually not what it says. Now, there are other, other places, and certainly in the Psalms, we find that kind of language. But, but there Jesus is just saying, He's just saying, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He's not necessarily saying, pray for them to stop persecuting you, because you realize if you pray for your enemy to stop persecuting you, you're really just praying for yourself. So if you have, you know, you're like, I pray for my boss every day. I pray for my boss. My, my boss is a jerk and is not a, not a good boss, is, you know, is not treating his or her employees well, but I pray for him. I pray for him, and I pray that he would stop being such a jerk to me, right? I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about necessarily. Because then what you're really praying for yourself. Your prayer for your enemy or whatever is not really, it's about you. And I think what Jesus is getting at is the kind of prayer is, is imagine this, imagine if you prayed for your your boss or whoever it is that's, that's difficult in your life, 
And instead of praying that God would fix the way they're treating you, what if you just prayed that God would bless them? God, I just pray that, I pray they would have, that you would work in them today, that they would have a great day. I, I pray that things would go well for their family. God, I just pray that you would, you would bless them. And see, Jesus is showing us that that's the kind of prayer that can actually make your soul fit. So what brings transformation to our souls? What kind of prayer? Well, it's this kind of prayer that's God-focused. It's on God's kingdom and not on my own. Secondly, we see that, that this kind of prayer comes from a position of helplessness. The kind of prayer that can really bring transformation in your life is a prayer that comes from a genuine posture of helplessness. We see that here beginning in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, most likely Jesus is making an allusion, as he so often does, to the exodus, to the story of the people of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt and they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then they came out and they, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years and it's very likely that this is what Jesus is, is making a reference to throughout Jesus' ministry. He's often sort of alluding to that whole story of the exodus and throughout the New Testament scriptures, the other writers are often paralleling the ministry of Jesus with that precisely as a way of saying Jesus is the new Exodus. Jesus is leading out. He is the new Israel, that he is the fulfillment of everything that that was pointing to. And so very likely, again, this is what Jesus is is making an allusion to give us each day our daily bread. And he's making an allusion to this time in the life of the people of Israel when they were wandering in the desert and they didn't have any food. They were were not hunter-gatherers. They were not good hunter-gatherers, and where they were, it probably wouldn't have been a very good place to hunter-gather. Anyways, these were agricultural people who were used to working the land, and, and so this wandering stuff was not going well for them, right? And so, so they're praying for God to miraculously provide food for them, that each day they needed God to provide for them. There was this sense of helplessness. They recognize their helplessness before God. And what, what Jesus is pointing at here is a kind of prayer that recognizes this, that it's very easy for us to be fooled into thinking that, that we have control over, over our own health, over our own provision, that we're not daily, we're daily in the hands of God with regards to these things. What's interesting is that in the book of Deuteronomy, God warns them about this, when he brings them into the promised land and they'll be able to start up their whole agricultural way of life again. And he warns them, he's like, once you start growing this stuff yourself, you're going to start thinking that you, you're doing it. You're going to start thinking it comes from you and then you're not going to be coming to me from this place of helplessness. And the same thing is even more true in, in our day and age, as advanced as our society has become. It's very easy for us to not recognize this sort of daily dependence upon God. And so this is a way of reminding us, no, the kind of prayer that brings transformation is realizing that everything that you have comes from God and and you are completely helpless before his sovereignty. 
And it's only by his grace and his love that you have what you have, that this kind of helplessness is precisely what can bring transformation. This is why, this is why genuine hardships in a person's life will often bring the greatest kind of transformation in their soul. Because it's in times of hardship that you begin to realize how helpless you are. You have nowhere else to turn. You're forced to turn to God. I think about a close relative of mine who said that one of the, a time in their life when they, they felt the closest to God and had the most sort of profound experience of the presence of God was lying on an MRI table, getting ready to be put into the, the little tube, you know. And they were being scanned, they didn't know what was going on in their body, and they felt helpless. And it was in that moment that they really sensed the presence of God. That sort of helplessness is what can bring transformation. I've shared with you, even in my own life, just this past year, I went through a season where I was experiencing some pretty severe anxiety based on there were some things going on that was really triggering some anxiety. And and it brought me to this point of desperation before God. And in that moment, there was no question, I began to experience the presence of God working in my soul in a way that I hadn't in a while. There's something about hardships that remind us and really take us to a place of desperate and, and helpless prayer. Another way of saying this is that nothing leads to peace quite like worry if you bring it before the Lord. Nothing can lead to peace quite like worry if you bring it before God from a posture of helpless prayer. Of course, you don't necessarily have to, and this is the point, you don't have to be going through hardships in order to pray this kind of helpless prayer. You see, this is where I think the flip side of it is is gratitude. A, A prayer of gratitude actually recognizes helplessness before God. A grateful heart that recognizes isn't just longing for the things that you don't have, but is incredibly grateful every day for the things that you do have, is also stems from a, a, a heart of, of recognizing their helplessness before God. So this is the kind of prayer, the sort of helpless dependency upon God that can bring transformation. We see this in verse 3. We see it in verse 4. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, forgive us of our sins. Here, it's talking about a, a helplessness where one is broken before the holiness of God. You see, I, I think it's important to notice this, that it verse, verse 3 is really pointing us to having a posture of helplessness before the sovereignty of God. This verse here is pointing us to having a sense of helplessness before the holiness of God. And what I mean by that is that, is that we, we, need, we need both. And I think there are some people who maybe they do get broken before God and before the sovereignty of God. And so this is the individual who is willing to say, boy, I can't make it without the Lord. Boy, I would never have gotten this job if it wasn't for the Lord. I don't know how I'd pay the bills if it wasn't for the Lord. I don't know how I would have overcome this illness if it wasn't for the Lord. That's a person who's broken, has a helplessness before the sovereignty of God. But that person may not yet have gotten to the point where they say, I am broken before a holy God because I'm a sinner. 
And so we can sort of fool ourselves into thinking we have a sort of humble, helpless attitude before God, but it's really just this kind, helplessness before the sovereignty in God, and not an awareness of the fact that the way that we live our lives and the way in which our heart is disposed towards things that are selfish, things that are not of God, we may not be aware of that, and so we aren't aware of our helplessness before the holiness of God. But it's when we're able to do that, when we're able to, to acknowledge, boy, I really, I'm a sinner. I, I don't do, oftentimes I don't do what I ought to do. I don't love the way that I ought to love. I don't think about things and people the way that I ought to. You see, it's that sense of helplessness before the holiness of God, which can actually begin to bring transformation in our lives, in other words, what we're talking about here really is confession, right? That's what this is. This is a prayer of confession. Forgive us of our sins, that, that nothing can bring transformation to your soul quite like a, a prayer of confession before God. That's why in the weeks leading up to Easter, we take the tree out in the, in the foyer and we turn it into the confession tree. And it becomes this way of reminding ourselves of the importance of confession, the, the life-giving nature of confession. The confessing our sins before God can actually bring transformation. You know, I don't know if this happened. Well, I do know this happened to a number of you throughout the last couple of months, but the stomach bug, stomach, whatever it's called, the stomach bug kind of swept through. Um, Certainly this area, it seemed like it was all over the place. And it came through our family. Um, God bless Lorraine. She bore the brunt of my son throwing up. We happened to be away and Lorraine was watching our kids. And thank you very much for taking that on my behalf. That was sort of a, a substitutionary way of absorbing the Whatever. Anyway, so she, she, she took that upon herself, so thank you so much for that, Lorraine. But it, then it swept through our house. It got my, my, my daughter got sick and was, was throwing up, and I know that many of you were experiencing this as well. And, you know, look, this is not a pleasant conversation, is it, to talk about throwing up? And throwing up is, of course, not something that we look forward to, right? But here, isn't it true? Isn't it true that once, once you start to get sick, the once you start to experience that, that in your stomach, that there actually comes this point for many of us when you actually long to throw up, that the only way you're actually going to begin to feel good again is if you throw that up. There's something almost cleansing about that as, as ugly as it may be. I would say that confession is actually very similar. Confession is like throwing up. It's like, it's just recognizing this, what's in you and needing to get it out. But there's a, a TV show that I think was on Netflix. I haven't seen it. I was just reading about it where there's a scene where the person, this person actually confesses something in their life, something that they had done in their past, and they confess it, and then they throw up. And it's a way of just showing this connection that, that just sort of, You need to get it out, but there's something freeing about it. 
coming before God with a sort of helplessness and recognizing our sin before a holy God and confessing that is a way of bringing life to our souls. Sort of this this helplessness, this helpless posture before God. Finally, we see the helplessness emerges then even in the last verse. It says, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. This is sort of an awareness that we are prone to wander. God, I am prone to wander. God, I am prone to to, to go, and it's this, this incredible view of the sovereignty of God. God, don't let this happen. Don't lead us into that. I am prone to, to wander probably that for the early church that would have been reading the, the Gospel of Luke for the first time. They certainly would have read this at a time where persecution was coming upon the church, and there was that temptation to turn away from God. And of course, for us, it's, it's not the same, but there are all kinds of reasons why in our culture we are tempted to turn away away from God, to begin to doubt, to begin to, to not trust God anymore. And so this is a prayer of helpless. It's, it's acknowledging that. Right? The, the disciples, one of the problems that the disciples made, if you remember, is Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, well, it's not me. I'm never going to betray you. I'm never going to leave you. And then, of course, what happens? They all do. They all turn their back. They, they forgot about this. They forgot about when Jesus taught them, no, you need to pray. God, help me to not turn away because I am prone to. That even my ability to follow you doesn't come from me. It comes from you. And so I stand before you helpless and need of you coming and keeping me away from the temptation to turn away. How do we get soul fit? How do we get our souls in shape? We see this practice of prayer. Prayer is an exercise which you can engage in, which can enable your soul to get fit, to get in shape. If we come before God and we say, God, your kingdom, your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. If we, we put his will ahead of our own, and then if we come before him with this helplessness, we can begin to experience the life of joy and peace that comes from a soul that is fit. In just a few moments here, we're going to take communion. Uh, you guys can get ready in the back before you come forward. Communion actually is, is an opportunity for us to put into practice precisely the posture that we see in this prayer. It's an opportunity for us as we participate in this and through faith and through prayer you know, as we take communion, this is a, a prayer, is an opportunity to pray and to come before the Lord, and it allows us to, to practice this posture of helplessness before God, to die to our own kingdom. That the heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus came and died for us. And we can begin to experience life when we receive that grace and then say, now I die to myself for you. That Jesus, as you died for me, now I die for you for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so as we participate in the elements, it's a call. It's a way of saying, God, I die to my own agenda. I die to my own kingdom. I give myself entirely for you. And then secondly, it's an opportunity for us to come before God from this posture of helplessness. It's an opportunity for us to come 
before and to eat the bread and the cup as a way of seeing, saying, God, I need my daily bread. I need you. You are what sustains me. I am helpless apart from you. And it's an opportunity for us to come before God with our sin and to confess our sin and to know that we come before a God who loves us, who welcomes us into his presence. If you are here today and perhaps uh, you feel distant from God, perhaps there are things in your life that have separated you from him and you feel distant, the very heart of the Christian faith and the very heart of communion is that Jesus died for you, that he loves you, and he wants you to be in his presence. Will the ushers please come forward? Please bow your heads with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning. We come before you in awe that you turn your ear towards us. You are a God who has not turned away from us. You are a God who has come to us not because of anything that we have done, but entirely because of your grace. So God, in humility, from a posture of helplessness, we come before you, Lord, and we ask that your grace would be upon us. God, as we participate in the elements, Lord, may we be drawn to the cross. May you be lifted up. May we see the great God that you are. May we receive your grace. And from that, May we commit to following you and extending your kingdom.